We are on chapter 18 in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. School days were eagerly anticipated by Francie. She wanted all of the things that she thought came with school. She was a lonely child and she longed for the companionship of other children. She wanted to drink from the school water fountains in the yard. The faucets were inverted and she thought that soda water came out instead of plain water. She had heard Mama and Papa speak of the schoolroom. She wanted to see the map that pulled down like a shade. Most of all, she wanted school supplies. A notebook and tablet and a pencil box with a sliding top filled with new pencils, an eraser, a little tin pencil sharpener made in the shape of a cannon, a pen wiper, and a six-inch softwood yellow ruler. Before school, there had to be vaccination. That was the law. How it was dreaded. When the health authorities tried to explain to the poor and illiterate that vaccination was the giving of a harmless form of smallpox to work up immunity against the deadly form, the parents didn't believe it. All they got out of the explanation was that germs would be put into a healthy child's body. Some foreign-born parents refused to permit their children to be vaccinated. They were not allowed to enter school. Then the law got after them for keeping the children out of school. A free country, they asked. You should live so long. What's free about it, they reasoned, when the law forces you to educate your children and then endangers their lives to get them into school. Weeping mothers brought bawling children to the health center for inoculation. They carried on as though bringing their innocence to the slaughter. The children screamed hysterically at the first sight of the needle, and their mothers, waiting in the anteroom, threw their shawls over their heads and keened loudly as if wailing for the dead. Francie was seven, and Neely was six. Katie had held Francie back, wishing both children to enter school together so they could protect each other against the older children. On a dreadful Saturday in August, she stopped in the bedroom to speak to them before she went off to work. She awakened them and gave instructions. Now when you get up, wash yourselves good and when it gets to be 11 o'clock, go around the corner to the public health place, tell them to vaccinate you because you're going to school in September. Francie began to tremble, nearly burst into tears. You're coming with us, Mama, Francie pleaded. I've got to go to work. Who's going to do my work if I don't? Asked Katie, covering up her conscience with indignation. Francie said nothing more. Katie knew that she was letting them down, but she couldn't help it. She just couldn't help it. Yes, she should go with them to lend the comfort and authority of her presence, but she knew she couldn't stand the ordeal. Yet, they had to be vaccinated. Her being with them or somewhere else couldn't take that fact away. So why shouldn't one of the three be spared? Besides, she said to her conscience, it's a hard and bitter world. They've got to live in it. Let them get hardened young to take care of themselves.
Papa's going with us then, said Francie hopefully. Papa's at headquarters waiting for a job. He won't be home all day. You're big enough to go alone. Besides, it won't hurt. Neely wailed on a higher key. Katie could hardly stand that. She loved the boy so much. Part of her reason for not going with them was that she couldn't bear to see the boy hurt, not even by a pinprick. Almost, she decided to go with them. But no. If she went, she'd lose half a day's work, and she'd have to make up on Sunday morning. Besides, she'd be sick afterwards. They'd manage somehow without her. She hurried off to her work. Francie tried to console the terrified Neely. Some older boys had told him that they cut your arm off when they get you in the health center. To take his mind off the thing, Francie took him down into the yard and they made mud pies. They quite forgot to wash, as Mama had told them to. They almost forgot about 11 o'clock. The mud pie making was so beguiling. Their hands and their arms got very dirty playing in the mud. At 10 to 11, Miss Gaddis hung out the window and yelled down that their mother had told her to remind them when it was near 11 o'clock. Neely finished off his last mud pie, watering it with his tears. Francie took his hand and with slow dragging steps, the children walked around the corner. They took their place on a bench. Next to them sat a Jewish mama who clutched her large six-year-old boy in her arms and wept and kissed his forehead passionately from time to time. Other mothers sat there with grim suffering furrowed on their faces. Behind the frosted glass door where the terrifying business was going on, there was a steady bawling punctuated by a shrill scream, resumption of the bawling, and then a pale child would come out with a strip of pure white gauze around his left arm. His mother would rush and grab him and, with a foreign curse and a shaken fist at the frosted door, hurry him out of the torture chamber. Francie went in trembling. She had never seen a doctor or a nurse in all of her small life. The whiteness of the uniforms, the shiny, cruel instruments laid out on a napkin on a tray, the smell of antiseptics, and especially the cloudy sterilizer with its bloody red cross filled her with tongue-tied fright. The nurse pulled up her sleeve and swabbed a spot clean on her left arm. Francie saw the white doctor coming towards her with the cruelly poised needle. He loomed larger and larger until he seemed to blend into a great needle. She closed her eyes, waiting to die. Nothing happened. She felt nothing. She opened her eyes slowly, hardly daring to hope that it was all over. She found, to her agony, that the doctor was still there, poised needle and all. He was staring at her arm in distaste. Francie looked too. She saw a small white area on a dirty, dark brown arm. She heard the doctor talking to the nurse. Filth, 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 from morning to night. I know they're poor, but they could wash. Water is free and soap is cheap. Just look at that arm, nurse.
The nurse looked and clucked in horror. Fancy stood there with the hot flame points of shame burning her face. The doctor was a Harvard man, interning at the neighborhood hospital. Once a week, he was obligated to put in a few hours at one of the free clinics. He was going into a smart practice in Boston when his internship was over. Adopting the phraseology of the neighborhood, he referred to his Brooklyn internship as going through purgatory when he wrote to his socially prominent fiance in Boston. The nurse was a Williamsburg girl. You could tell that by her accent. The child of poor Polish immigrants, she had been ambitious, worked days in a sweatshop, and gone to school at night. Somehow she had gotten her training. She hoped someday to marry a doctor. She didn't want anyone to know she had come from the slums. After the doctor's outburst, Francie stood hanging her head. She was a dirty girl. That's what the doctor meant. He was talking more quietly now, asking the nurse how that kind of people could survive, that it would be a better world if they were all sterilized and couldn't breed anymore. Did that mean he wanted her to die? Would he do something to make her die because her hands and arms were dirty from the mud pies? She looked at the nurse. To Francie, all women were mamas, like her own mother, and Aunt Sissy and Aunt Evie. She, saw, she thought the nurse might say something like, Maybe this little girl's mother works and didn't have time to wash her good this morning. Or, You know how it is, doctor. Children will play in dirt. But what the nurse actually said was, I know, isn't it terrible? I sympathize with you, doctor. There is no excuse for these people living in filth. A person who pulls himself up from a low environment, be it via the bootstrap route, has two choices. Having risen above his environment, he can forget it, or he can rise above it and never forget it, and keep compassion and understanding in his heart for those he has left behind him in the cruel upclimb. The nurse had chosen the forgetting way. Yet, as she stood there, she knew that years later she would be haunted by the sorrow in the face of that starveling child, and that she would wish bitterly that she had said a comforting word then and done something towards the saving of her immortal soul. She had the knowledge that she was small, but she lacked the courage to be otherwise. When the needle jabbed, Francie never felt it. The waves of hurt started by the doctor's words were raking her body and drove out all other feeling. While the nurse was expertly tying a strip of gauze around her arm and the doctor was putting his instrument in the sterilizer and taking out a fresh needle, Francie spoke up. My brother is next. His arm is just as dirty as mine, so don't be surprised. And you don't have to tell him. You told me. They stared at this bit of humanity who had become so strangely articulate. Francie's voice went ragged with a sob. You don't have to tell him. Besides, it won't do no good. He's a boy, and he don't care if he is dirty. She turned, stumbled a little, and walked out of the room. As the door closed, she heard the doctor's surprised voice. 
I had no idea she'd understand what I was saying, she heard the nurse say. Oh well, on a sighing note. Katie was home for lunch when the children got back. She looked at their bandaged arms with misery in her eyes. Francie spoke out passionately. Why, Mama, why? Why do they have to... to say things and then stick a needle in your arm? Vaccination, said Mama firmly, now that it was all over, is a very good thing. It makes you tell your left hand from your right. You have to write with your right hand when you go to school, and that sore will be there to say, "Uh uh-uh, not this hand, use the other hand. This explanation satisfied Francie, because she had never been able to tell her left hand from her right. She ate and drew pictures with her left hand. Katie was always correcting her and transferring the chalk to the ne- or the needle from the left hand to her right. After Mama explained about vaccination, Francie began to think that maybe it was a wonderful thing. It was a small price to pay if it simplified such a great problem and let you know which hand was which. Francie began using her right hand instead of the left after the vaccination and never had trouble afterwards. Francie worked up a fever that night, and the sight of the injection itched painfully. She told Mama, who became greatly alarmed. She gave intense instructions. You're not to scratch it, no matter how it bites you. Why can't I scratch it? Because if you do, your whole arm will swell up and turn black and drop right off. So don't scratch it. Katie did not mean to terrify the child. She herself was badly frightened. She believed that blood poisoning would set in if the arm were touched. She wanted to frighten the child into not scratching it. Francie had to concentrate on not scratching the painfully itching area. The next day, shots of pain were shooting up the arm. While preparing for bed, she peered under the bandage. To her horror, the place where the needle had entered was swollen, dark green, and festering yellowly. yellowly. And Francie had not scratched it. She knew she had not scratched it. But wait, maybe she had scratched it in her sleep the night before. Yes, she must have done it then. She was afraid to tell Mama. Mama would say, I told you and I told you and you still wouldn't listen. Now look. It was Sunday night. Papa was out working. She couldn't sleep. She got up from her cot and went into the front room and sat at the window. She leaned her head on her arms and waited to die. At three in the morning, she heard a Graham Avenue trolley grind to a stop on the corner. That meant someone was getting off. She leaned out the window. Yes, it was Papa. He sauntered down the street with his light dancer's step, whistling, My sweetheart's the man in the moon. The figure in its tuxedo and derby hat with a rolled-up waiter's apron and a neat packet under its arm seemed like life itself to Francie. She called to him when he got to the door. He looked up and tipped his hat gallantly. She opened the kitchen door for him. What are you doing up so late, prima donna? he asked. 
it's not Saturday night, you know. I was sitting at the window, she whispered, waiting for my arm to drop off. He choked back a laugh. She explained about the arm. He closed the door leading into the bedrooms and turned up the gas. He removed the bandage and his stomach turned over at the sight of the swollen, festering arm. But he never let her know. He never let her know. Why, baby, that's nothing at all. Just nothing at all. You should have seen my arm when I was vaccinated. It was twice as swollen and red, white, and blue instead of green and yellow. And now look how hard and strong it is. He lied gallantly, for he had never been vaccinated. He poured warm water into a basin and added a few drops of carbolic acid. He watched the ugly sore over and over again. She winced when it stung, but Johnny said that stinging meant curing. He sang a foolish, sentimental song in a whisper as he washed it. He never cares to wander from his own fireside. He never cares to ramble or to roam. He looked around for a clean bit of cloth to serve as a bandage. Finding none, he took off his coat and shirt dicky, pulled his undershirt off over his head, and dramatically ripped a strip of cloth from it. Your good undershirt, she protested. Ah, it was all full of holes anyhow. He bandaged the arm. The cloth smelled of Johnny, warm and cigarish, but it was a comforting thing to the child. It smelled of protection and love. There, you're all fixed up, prima donna. Whatever gave you the idea your arm was going to fall off? Mama said it would if I scratched it. I didn't mean to scratch it, but I guess I did while I was sleeping. Maybe. He kissed her thin cheek. Now go off to bed. She went and slept peacefully the rest of the night. In the morning, the throbbing had stopped, and in a few days the arm was normal again. After Francie had gone to bed, Johnny smoked another cigar. Then he undressed slowly and got into Katie's bed. She was sleepily aware of his presence, and in one of her rare impulses of affection, she threw her arm across his chest. He removed it gently and edged as far away from her as he could. He lay close to the wall. He folded his hands under his head and lay staring into the darkness all the rest of that night.